Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another podcast. I'm Christina Vogt, Associate Editor of the Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Justin McArthur, who is a professor of neurology, director of the Johns Hopkins Department of Neurology, and president of the American Neurological Association, and Dr. Steven Zeiler, who is an associate professor of neurology, director of the Vascular Neurology Fellowship Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and clinical informatics director for Johns Hopkins Neurology. Thank you both for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you. Today, we'll be discussing teleneurology and how it can best be implemented in practice. So first, could you discuss the potential benefits of teleneurology? Yeah, I'd be happy to start discussing that. And I think, you know, clearly our approach to teleneurology and telemedicine has been catapulted from a relatively small scale operation uh, pre-COVID to essentially 90%, 95% of what we do in terms of ambulatory practice for our patients with neurologic disorders. And you know, clearly the major advantage in the era of COVID is safety, safety for patients, safety for their family members, and safety for uh, our staff. So even independent of the current COVID crisis, there have been a number of people in Johns Hopkins Neurology who have been developing teleneurological plans to follow up on patients that may have limitations getting to clinic. So patients with particular mobility issues, you could imagine patients with Parkinson's disease, with a stroke leading to hemiparesis, or any sort of neurological process that can limit their mobility and therefore limit access to a clinic. And this can be both in the chronic situation or as several of my colleagues have been working on immediately after discharge where getting back into the home and situating in the home can be comfortable and following up immediately after discharge can add quite quickly and efficiently to the patient's care. I think um, just from my own experience with telemedicine, which you know, I've been doing for a while, obviously ramped up substantially in the last three months with COVID. I think another advantage is, and this may sound a little paradoxical, but it's actually quite an intimate experience for the patient and the provider because you're usually seeing the patient and, and often their family members in their home they're often much more relaxed because they haven't been struggling with traffic and with parking to get to your outpatient office. And they're in their own environment and they feel more comfortable. And it also gives you a window into the, the home environment and you can see how it's set up. You can see safety issues. You can even look at the state of cleanliness of the surroundings. It, it really is truly a, you know, a window on, on somebody's life that we don't get in the ambulatory practice setting. What are some common challenges for teleneurology and how can they be overcome? So I'm, I'm of a different generation to Steve and I'm not a digital native, meaning that I didn't grow up with smartphones and computers. So I think for, for neurologists of, of my generation, and obviously I'm generalizing, there are some barriers for, for the technical side of managing telemedicine. Most of us can overcome those with a little bit of practice and help from younger people like Steve. I think another issue is doing a telemedicine visit just by nature is very different than 
being in the office. You're, you're not touching somebody, you're not shaking hands, you're not able to tap them on the shoulder, you're not able to hug them. Uh, so you have to rely on other emotional cues to show that you're paying attention, that you're warm, that you're putting a person at ease, that you're delivering good or bad news in a sympathetic way. So there are, I think, um, there's quite a lot of on-the-job learning with telemedicine and teleneurology. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And you know, the, the fundamental aim of telemedicine is to increase access to care. It can be done perhaps more quickly and more efficiently because we don't have to deal with parking and coming into the clinic. But nevertheless, as Justin points out, there are several big issues with telemedicine. And that the, the two biggest that I found are patient access and an inability to perform aspects of a clinical exam. And these two issues are particularly prevalent in teleneurology, by which I mean the use of telemedicine to accomplish a, a neurology visit. So with regards to patient access, teleneurology and especially telestroke, and that's I am a stroke physician, can deal with patients with low socioeconomic resources and older patients or patients perhaps with uh, cognitive decline that, that might have little experience with technology. This, this can limit access to technology enough or limit access to a teleneurological visit. And equally as important, clinical neurology, perhaps, perhaps more than any other subspecialty is shaped by its attendant examination. And this limits provider's ability to assess patients and can make certain providers cheapish about using teleneurology. There have been many questions about, can we provide continuing service to our patients without being able to touch them, to assess a reflex, to find out where the sensory limitations actually are? And this has dominated a number of, of conversations. Yeah, I'd add another piece, which is perhaps on a broader uh, level outside of teleneurology, but it applies to all of telemedicine. And that's the digital divide. And if you look in Baltimore, the survey in 2017 showed that over 30% of households in Baltimore did not have access to broadband internet. So clearly those are individuals and households that would not be able to participate in, in telemedicine, at least as it's set up now. What are some good beginning steps to take for physicians who have not yet implemented teleneurology as a regular component of their practice, especially as the COVID-19 era progresses? Well, Christina, in our department, when COVID hit, we closed access to aspects of our clinic. We lived this. And one of the first things that had to happen was to make sure that providers understood how to actually perform a teleneurological visit, which meant just starting from the beginning and understanding what our technology was. And luckily we have some fabulous people in our telemedicine division and support staff, but perhaps even more than that, a number of us were very associated with it and comfortable with teleneurology and with the technology. But one of the things that came out was again, how do we actually interact with our patients? And, and we were lucky enough to have a number of people where we could share our ability to perform a teleneurological examination. We helped to codify this and place this on a website such that all of our clinicians were able to 
read this, access this, and build an exam that they felt would be appropriate for their uh, patient population. That was the first thing that we did. And it's amazing how creative neurologists have become at finding ways to do the neurological exam, which is, as Steve has said, is, is really an important part of the neurological evaluation. But to do it either by proxy, you can do cognitive testing remotely, uh, by using family members to check a balance, a sensory exam, even I've had patients do their own reflexes. And while this may not be as good as in the office, it, in an emergency situation, it works well. And it's been quite remarkable how the group of neurologists at Johns Hopkins have quickly shared these innovative ideas and we've become quite comfortable quite quickly on how to do this. How can neurologists help patients who might be a bit hesitant about teleneurology, especially if they're not as familiar with technology, or as you mentioned earlier, those who might not have access to the technology needed to actually carry out a telemedicine appointment? I think the first thing is to sort of lay the groundwork as to what they can expect to see from a telemedicine visit. The first hurdle is really getting over the technology. And once a patient's done it once or twice, it's actually pretty straightforward. We, we use uh, either our medical office coordinators, or some people would call them clinical secretaries, or our uh, CMAs from the clinic to help uh, guide patients to go through the different steps that they need. We used an Epic platform to put the Epic platform in their hands so that they know what to do, which buttons to push, and, and when to push them so that they can connect with their provider, the neurology provider. The second is, I think, as, as you would at any in-person visit, you know, remind the patient what we're going to do. We're going to ask some questions. We're going to talk a little bit about their history and symptoms. We want to address their questions, and then we're going to do a a neurological examination of some type. Another thing I, I do is I remind the patient that you know, look, looking in their eyes is very helpful. And particularly some of our older patients don't necessarily remember where the camera is on the laptop or the tablet that they're using. So you have to kind of guide them uh, to keep eye contact and, and also remind them that you're not going to be able to make eye contact continually unless you're a touch typist because you'll be looking down, taking notes, so just to set the, the, ground, the ground rules, if you will. I can't stress that enough. Within about 10 to 15 minutes of a visit, even the most skittish of patients seems to enjoy the visit, sitting at home, realizing that the technology is merely a, a bridge to the provider. And I've not had a single visit where it went off the rails because of an uncomfortableness with technology. And finally, what key takeaways do you hope to leave with neurologists on this topic? Well, I'm going to dive in because the, one of the reasons, obviously, that telemedicine has exploded and teleneurology in particular is the relaxation of some of the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, regulations around reimbursement for telemedicine. And at the current state of play, uh, those regulations may come back into force when the state of emergency with COVID uh, goes away. So I think it's really important that we continue to pressure uh, CMS and patient groups to allow telemedicine to be part of our future in terms of neurological care. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. This, even if the COVID emergency were to go away tomorrow, we would not return to business as usual seeing patients. That is to say, we have found a particular comfort and efficiency with telemedicine that certainly wouldn't be as prevalent in the future as it is right now, but will nevertheless play a significant role. And so to find an equilibrium with CMS is going to be very important. Additionally, as we move forward, many groups, including our, our team at Johns Hopkins Neurology is looking to develop new technology and new ways that will allow providers and patients to interact more efficiently and with a greater ability to, for example, acquire physiologic data that could enhance a telemedicine visit. Thank you both again for joining me for today's podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. For more podcasts like this, visit consultant360.com.